0: for a little behind the scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the first deal they built, I bet. No, <laughs> no, you know, you, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but painted yeah. worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, AKA Dr. Daniel Pierce, of U N C Asheville to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experiences of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap cheapo cars and that that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn. Uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran <laughs> off the road, And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steel when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed bar wire fence. <laughs> so check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Seam Bolt Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At polepositionmag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com.
2: Sure
0: go ahead and roll. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las
1: Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. When it was just MB2 Motorsports, that was probably the most memorable, fun, enjoyable times that I've had in racing. I'm not really like doing... Hanging out with you today, really? <laughs> uh, um, okay. Uh, yeah. Was it no. something I said? No, <laughs> no it, it's going to be something that I said. Work came first for before everything. Didn't matter what. Work was first. So, um, that being said, I don't want to do, do that anymore, and I wouldn't expect anybody else to do what I did for a long time. I don't know when the next race will be, but I'm looking
2: forward to it. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade.
0: And my name is Rick Houston and welcome to the Seam Vault podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history. And Steve, it, it has been a truly sad start to 2024 in the NASCAR world. First, of course, there was Kelly Yarborough and then Ryan Pemberton. And then yesterday on Saturday, I got word that Larry Wright, had died the night before on Friday. And if that name doesn't sound familiar to a lot of folks, here's a clip from the interview that I did with Larry back in April of 2022. Well, if you would just start us off by introducing
2: yourself. My name is Larry Wright. I raced under the name of L.W. Well, Rick, that clip is part of an interview series of interviews you did with a man more familiarly known as L.W. Wright. A very infamous individual, the DB Cooper of NASCAR yeah. for several reasons. <laughs> now, I know that after you made contact, making arrangements for the interview itself, <laughs> that's a story unto itself. What were the arrangements that were required of you to get to him?
0: The total backstory to this story it would make a book. It would make a movie. It has been by far the most bizarre, the most difficult, the most frustrating and interesting episode of my entire career. Now, the stuff that we went through with Marcus Lemonis and the whole 5,000 mile thing and, and trying to get this archive digitized and everything that happened there, yes, that was frustrating. Yes, it was aggravating, but in a different way than this was. Let's just say that everything that has happened is unlike anything that I have ever experienced before. And like I said, last episode, just before I found out about Larry's passing, I learned the hard way that you don't fight city hall. (laughs) However you want to interpret that. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just say that I've been fighting a lot of battles on a lot of different fronts
2: when it comes to this story. You did this story, a unique story a great story, a well-listened-to podcast, and well read story about L.W. Wright. And in the end, despite the fact that he was on the wrong side of the law and a lot of people were hurt by some of his actions, you ended up having an affinity for him. He wasn't all bad in your eyes.
0: You know, that's one of the intriguing parts about this whole scenario is the fact that I very firmly believe that there were two people there. Two distinct, completely different personalities. Number one, there's Larry. There's the good old country boy. Yeah, he got into some trouble along the way, but he was just a good old boy. A good old boy from the mountains of Virginia. Then on the other side was L.W. And L.W. was sinister. L.W. was a very tough character. L.W. would just as soon fight you as to look at you and take advantage of you there were a lot of people that he hurt. And yes, I truly do believe that he deserved to be incarcerated. And Steve, this just hurts my soul to say from the very first contact that I had with Chris, his son, it was made very clear to me that his greatest fear was dying in jail.
2: Exactly what happened. Correct.
0: Which is exactly what happened. And he was away from those who still cared about him. He was alone. And so just that very fact was punishment enough for everything that he had done to people over the years. Now that was LW Larry. Yeah. I liked Larry. I don't know that I trusted Larry completely, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) but I liked Larry. Larry was just a good old boy and and I'm going to miss that side of it.
2: Well, Rick, what I think we have here is a tragic, Saga, and you were fortunate enough to be the man who told it. And in so doing, whatever you think of Larry or L.W., he is still a part of NASCAR lore. So, Rick, what comes next? Steve Wade, that's a good question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Steve, I honestly don't know at this point. I had been talking to some people, and we'd had some back and forth and yeah, I mean, it looked positive that we were going to be able to do something documentary wise, but now that Larry is no longer with us, I don't know where that stands. And right now I'd really just like to take a breath. You and I have talked many times about this, but this has been a two and a half year process. From first contact with Chris until now, it's been a rocky road. I've been beat up a couple of times. Yeah. hard over this. <laughs> <laughs> And you know what? That's fine. I'm a big boy. I can take it, but I would just like to step back and take a breath and see what happens. I'm not going to worry about what happens next. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, that's fine with me. But right now, I would just like to, I'd like to rest on this one.
2: I can understand you wanting to rest on it. There's no question about that. But I have to say, Rick, this might not be over.
0: You never know. But right now, we're just going to see what happens. All right. Now, this week, we are going to share the third and final installment of our interview with Ryan Pemberton. And next week, the plan is to return to a more normal format. And we're going to be starting out with Troy Selbert.
2: Now, this is going to be good. I know this man.
0: And I sat down with Troy in our NASCAR Technical Institute studio last week. And that was an Awesome conversation.
2: <laughs> I'll have to tell you the story next time of how Troy and I met. This is one of a kind. Well, Steve, let's just say that I hope it wasn't in Juarez. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, no. Steve, thank you. I needed that one. <laughs> and listeners, you will understand that reference next week and no we do not censor our interviews <laughs> maybe we
1: should
0: <laughs> oh goodness all right and if you're not familiar with Troy he was a longtime crew member for Ricky Rudd at Hendrick Motorsports and he was also a crew chief for Lake Speed and Butchmont Motorsports and Troy actually gave Michael Fatback McSwain his start in the sport so he's either responsible for that or guilty of that. (laughs) We'll leave that up to your own interpretation. (laughs) And just as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American city business journals, owner of the same brand. From there, how many teams did you work with over the years?
1: (sighs) Well, I've crew chiefed for almost 20 drivers at some point in time. Um, But let me see. So that was – so I worked with – at MB2, had Nadeau, and then after Nadeau got hurt, we we had – so Jason Keller drove. Then we had – I had Mike Skinner. Mike Skinner drove some. Let me try to remember what year that was. Yeah, Mike Skinner drove some. Borset drove – road courses. Sat on the pole at Richmond the following year. The following race sat on the pole at Richmond with Mike Skinner in a backup car. Cold turkey, first lap, sat on the pole with a backup car. So that was pretty fun. Then we go to Sears Point with Boris Sed in the Army car and we sit on the pole there in the, with the Army car. And then the following year, I had two drivers, different drivers in the Bush Clash. So, um, Skinner did... Skinner drove. He was I forget who was the crew chief for Skinner for that the the bush clash and I did uh, um, Boris said for the clash. So it was, that was fun. Now that's I think that was Boris's first restrictor play race. So it was, it was good wow. times. Oh yeah, it was fun. All right. So at some point Robin gets hired
0: to this just crazy position at NASCAR. He was mm-hmm. the senior vice president of competition or whatever the mm-hmm. title was. You were used to working for Robin as your boss. Mm-hmm. But what was it like working for Robin with him in that kind of position? How much advice did you try to give him?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I kind of really stayed away from him at that point in time for a long time. You know, like almost to a, almost to a fault. Like, you know, almost like it was a conflict. Conflict of interest, you know what I mean. Yeah, so we yeah, we yeah. really, especially at the racetrack, just um, you never wanted anybody to think that anything like yeah. that. So we really, really stayed away for a long time until um, you know we all more comfortable about it. But you know, as you know, was, we're all really busy. Like, yeah. Um, my mom used to ask me all the time, "Did you see? You know, did you see your brothers?" Like. No, nope. we're all busy. You know, we, go, we could go weeks and never see each other. I mean, was your pers- was your relationship okay? Oh, but, yeah. Uh, okay. Absolutely. Right, okay, no, okay, right. we, we're, we're best friends. We do a lot of stuff together to this day. And I had my other brother, Randy, who did a lot of oh, things, yeah. TV yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. So there was times that we would go weeks without seeing each other, being at the racetrack on the same place. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. Hey, you go weeks and then bump into him at the, you know same applebees or something like that one day one afternoon. <laughs> now what was it like being interviewed by your brother Randy? Uh, did you ever try to cross him up or no do do something silly? No, I was silly? too nervous. I didn't really like doing that. I didn't really like doing that kind of stuff. Um you know to this day I still don't do, you know I don't like I'm not really like doing hanging out with you today, really. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> Okay. Uh, yeah. Was it no, something I said? No, it, no it, it's going to be something I said and uh, I, I don't want it I don't want it to be uh to be recorded. But um uh yeah, but that was that was always enjoyable uh, seeing him and uh and you know he was always a big big supporter of, of myself and uh and he's always really positive. He always Randy was always really positive and And he was really into the sport. He was very up on the stats, and
2: you
1: know, really, he was super knowledgeable about the whole sport. Um, I'd say more so than just about anybody in racing uh, these days. Like he was really at that time, he was really up on who's doing what. And um, now, how did he wind up going in such a completely
0: different direction from from you and Robin and Roman? And I, I, I don't know.
1: Well, I always laugh, like, uh, you know, he first of all, he couldn't change a light bulb, right? <laughs> so that, that really hurt him from working on cars. He was really terrible with that stuff. But, uh, you know, he he uh, he grew up playing sports, and then he was always a good-looking guy, and then he did modeling and and some CVs and stuff, and then uh, out in California, and then when he came back to visit Robin in North Carolina, he decided to stay there, and um, started inside. Uh, I think he was the first guy to inside Winston Cup with Ned yeah. Jarrett. Yeah, he did yeah. that for years. Um, That's how I learned about this sport. Yeah, was from your brother and Ned. Yeah, yeah. What, it was a great show. Great show. But no, I didn't. Like, I never really liked uh, doing uh, any interviews uh, w- with him. So I usually try to make one of his other guys do it. You know, All right. Steve Burns or somebody like that. You and I were talking before
0: we started. The interview, and you made the comment that you had attended every single race since the nineteen ninety or nineteen eighty eight Daytona five hundred. When was your last
1: one? Um, It was the last fall of September or so. Last fall, I can't remember. remember Twenty two. Yep. Okay. Went to every single race. Never missed one. I think it's called insanity. <laughs> right? It's called doing, something. <laughs> I mean, doing something over and over again and looking for a different result. Right. Uh, yeah. So I went to every um, single race and never missed one. So lots of uh, lots of hotel rooms. So the
0: decision to get out was that your decision or somebody else's?
1: No, that was that was not necessarily my decision. No, it wasn't my decision. Um, you know, I work for. Uh, Dale Earnhardt's team for ten years, almost ten years to the day. Dale Junior's team. Dale Junior's team. Okay, yeah. so um, you know, put together sixty or so wins in ten years. They wanted to go a different direction. They want to. They didn't want to renew my contract, so uh, I felt like maybe I just take a take a little break and and um, I, I never missed the race. Didn't think the world would racing world would spin if I wasn't there right so um, yeah being able to take a little time off not feel that pressure really put you know maybe put things in perspective for me so yeah yeah, and and I think that's where I'm at now feel good about things and uh, I don't know when the next race will be but I'm looking forward to it
0: now what are you doing now just kind of hanging out or
1: are you working anywhere no not officially I've done some road racing stuff um Done some road racing with uh, my brother Robin. Twenty-four um, hour race, did that a couple years. Uh, Twenty-four hours Daytona, uh, Sebring, so a couple a few endurance races. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do a couple of those coming up, and then, I don't know. We'll see what goes on from there. So are you actively looking now? Yeah, somewhat, somewhat looking. Okay, but. Um, what i don't want to do is what i did before and that's work, you know, 60, 70 hours a week. You know, 52 weeks a year. That's yeah. what i did back then. Up, up until the end. I mean, i was work came first for, before everything. Didn't matter what, work was first. So, um, that being said, i don't want to do, do that anymore. And i wouldn't expect anybody else to do what i did for a long time. All right, good deal.
0: Anything else you'd like to mm. get
1: across? Uh, DEI days when the DEI bought MB2. Uh huh. You want to talk about that? Sure, absolutely. That was terrible. But <laughs> again, <laughs> Red Bull racing, they shut down. <laughs> I mean, those are Red Bull racing shutting down. You know, I don't know. know. Uh, now, how long were you with DEI? Well, half a year. So they bought MB2, uh-huh. or Ginn Racing, they bought Ginn Racing, Yeah. which was that whole thing was about, yeah, I, I I could I wish I could have just wrote some of these things down when I saw them and sealed them in an envelope because I could have seen it coming. The day I met Bobby Ginn, I knew that that, 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 that guy was a, a thief and a liar. You could see it all day long. He, uh, so he bought buys in the team, we're going to do all these great things. They sells out and shuts down, so uh, he was he was quite the quite the character, but um, I think it was a year to the day it lasted. and that same day he that it closed down, it was an article in the newspaper how he was going to start build his own wind tunnel in uh, Charleston or in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. That was in the paper the day before he came in and. And fired like 150 people. <laughs> As for that was a lot of bad. That was a lot of bad blood for a lot of people. That were I you the bad. crew chief at that time? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much. That was you know, again racing. I, that was kind of my team. I ran the whole team really. I mean, I was the crew chief for yeah. Joe yeah. yeah at that time. But I mean, that team was everything I built. Like I was.
0: Really responsible for almost all of it now what was your relationship like with bobby or did Nip you have talked, yeah okay I,
1: I i could tell there was a lot of people they saw this guy rich guy come in a lot of people you could just see him sucking right up to him whether it be other crew chiefs or whatever just buddying up with him and uh, I, I wasn't going to allow myself to do that uh, he 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 the writing was on the wall he wasn't the right he wasn't the right person for all that, so I was skeptical of him the whole time. And then, uh, now where'd you wind up after? Is, I went to, is I went, that I was that went, Ginn, or I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, went. was that DEI? It was Ginn, then the DEI oh. bought it. Okay, yeah. And then, yeah. and then I. Uh, now, how long were you with DEI? You yeah, said until the, until the end of that year. Okay, I, I wasn't gonna. Oh, uh, what year was that? <laughs> hmm. it's, who were you working with? I was with uh, Joe Nemec.
0: Okay. In the army car. Yeah,
1: and um, you know we were running well up until that point, and then it really went south when the people from DEI took over. They weren't making races. They were. They had. Um, they weren't running very well. They buy Gin Racing for the points because we had cars that were further up in points. And then they immediately wanted to run the race team like they had run it before. And I was so appalled about that. Like, I I mean, there was some of the things that they did was exactly what they were doing and uh, have been doing and what not working. And I couldn't understand why they wanted to change, basically just do the same thing that they were doing. Like, that doesn't make sense. You bought this team because we were running way better than you guys. And, uh, But you don't want to do anything like we're doing. So very, very difficult times. I was the most frustrated I've ever been ever in my life for however many months that was. It was terrible. Absolutely terrible. Was there ever a
0: point in there where you said, okay, this is enough. I've been to races all these years. And, and as you mentioned earlier, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again. And expecting a different result, was there ever a point
1: in there where you said, "Okay, I am going to try something else. What kept you coming back oh the, the, the opportunity to do it and do it do it do it again I mean competition is you know competing that is that is uh that adrenaline and it's not it's not the adrenaline like you know that it's 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 a kind of a the adrenaline is always there you know it's not the you get a spike of adrenaline, like being good, going to the racetrack, the, being nervous about going through tech. Did you do this yeah. right? You have this covered, like you're constantly thinking, should I put more camber in it? Should I take some out? You know, like you're constantly battling all these decisions around the clock. And, yeah. you know, and you, when you're in that, you're really doing that as you sleep. You wake up in the middle of the night going like, Yeah, I'm gonna take a, c I'm gonna take half a degree of camber out. you wake up at three in the morning sweating over it and then And you enjoyed that? I don't know. Well, I guess I guess that's what that is, like that intensity. Yeah. yeah. Um and then hoping that you're you know, doing it and hoping you're right the next day, you know. So after all
0: that time you still enjoyed that yeah. kind of thing. Oh yeah, love that. Despite the pressure. And the way things were going with
1: skin and oh yeah that especially then especially then that was and really enjoyed making something better building something um, putting together better people making better decisions helping people other people make better decisions I mean that's really you know what it's about is getting the most out of all your people putting them in the right spot to be successful Um, and getting the most out of them. And when that happens, it's really enjoyable. That, prior to the Gin thing, when it was just MB2 Motorsports, that was probably the most memorable, fun, enjoyable times that I've had in racing. And everybody that was there then at that time, that have worked at other places, they've worked everywhere around, around the sport, in and out. When I bump into them here or there, they always say the same thing that that was the best time they've ever had in race. What made it so fun? I don't know. I think we just had collectively just put together such a great group of people that it was just there was no bickering, there was yeah. none, no yeah. negative stuff. Everything was a positive spin on everything, and then you and then you can run good, and it just came. It all came together. I mean, n- n- everybody did whatever it took. That was before you could punch a clock, and, and everybody just did whatever. Everybody was in the game, and when that happens, when you get everybody in the game, that does whatever it takes to be better. I mean, like I said, we didn't have a we didn't punch a clock. People were there because they wanted to be there, and it, they stayed late because they wanted to be better. And uh, when everybody was doing that, that was a really fun and and positive time and that was there was a couple years there that, that were like that at, with, at mb2 as good as it was how
0: hard did you fight to keep it together and not get sold to bobby
1: again it was completely blindsided at that time so we started out the season really well we had the army car it was army car it was um, uh, mark martin was driving it part-time so that was um, that was his deal he just wanted to run part-time do some testing and um, I was like, "This is this will be this will be great." And we ran the first however many races. We were leading the points going into Bristol. You won the Daytona 500. Mm, Should have won that. We did win it. They didn't <laughs> give it to us. That was, yeah, yeah. And you know, we didn't talk about that. That's the worst. That was th- yeah. the race that hurts the most is that one. But if you want to start there, so we started that season. Go to Daytona, and that whole week leading up to it all the things that we did to the car to make it better all the things Mark said he needed every time we did something that to, to help him with what he wanted it went better and better and better and better and and there was all kinds of cool things we did to the car and this is probably not the time to talk about it um, you know it wasn't necessarily you know cheating back then like I, w- I was never a big cheater like people talk about and there was a lot of stuff I'm, I'm, I'm twisted the now, what's in? your definition of cheating? Well, there's, <laughs> I mean, it, like uh, if it's a balloon animal, if you yeah. can twist it up and make a balloon animal out of it, that's okay. not cheating. But if you if the balloon pops, you've cheated. Okay. 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 So, all right. um, I've never so, heard it put in those terms. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we, yeah, all I and mean, we can talk about that stuff and the, some fun stuff. But so that week of Daytona, the Daytona 500. What year was that? Ninety oh nine. Uh, 07. 07? Yeah. See, I don't get it. my My, uh, year's mixed up. Okay. So we're going with Daytona, 500, 2007 with Mark Martin. And that was, be, you know, beginning of the gin thing. Um, we have a great Daytona going. The whole, the whole weekend has been going great. We Work hard on the car, change a lot of things on the car to make it better from qualifying to the race a lot of th- all the things that you do for qualifying and ones you do for the race. Like we have kind of undone all the stuff, manipulated the body a ton, a lot of different things. We're having a great day. We lead. we lead forever at the end of the race. I mean, I think it was like an hour or two hours. We had I think a one red flag, maybe two red flags. Yeah. We're leading the whole time. And come into the checkered, Kyle Busch is behind us and he gets loose and he slides up the racetrack and we get too big of a lead. I mean, for crying out loud, the only time Kyle Busch has ever gotten loose in his life, he was behind us. He slides up the racetrack. We get too big of a lead, um, and then they, they get a, they get a run on us. They start crashing. Clint Boyer, I think, is upside down on fire, and and they haven't thrown the yellow yet. And I'm so now. See, that's where I think he won. Absolutely. So yeah, and. Uh, we were leading at the start of the trioval, and we were we would have been leading at the exit of the trial. we We didn't lead like by a few inches for about fifty yeah. yards. And uh, yeah, that one hurts. That would have been a, that would have been a great one. Who knows what again racing would have been to this day if we won that race. but um, so the season started out like that. Mark was unbelievably good. We were um, we were finishing well, and we go to Bristol. As the point leader, and Mark decides that he is going to get out of the car and take his first break, and Regan Smith gets in the car, and that's his first race, Cup race ever, is uh, was at Bristol. We go on through the later in the year; things are still going good. We are not getting we are not getting Hendrick Motors anymore. Now we're getting DEI Motors. When they bought us, DEI Motors are blowing up like crazy. It was terrible. We were still, Mark was still eligible for a, still had enough points, was eligible going into Indianapolis to make the cutoff for the playoffs on driver points. And he had missed four or five and was still eligible. Indy didn't go well. We, DI, we blew up like three motors that weekend. It was terrible. We go a couple more races into the season um, we have um, We changed drivers again We put Eric Amarillo was his first race Going at Bristol So in one season, Regan Smith's first race In Bristol And then uh, followed up by Eric Amarillo His first race yeah. is at Bristol So pretty good places to start out Your first, your cup career is at Bristol I don't think that's how anybody would chalk it up, but that's how what we did. And uh, at that point in time, DEI had bought into it, and it was just spiraling out of control. It was it was terrible. And I left there, went to um, uh, Michael Waltrip Racing, and I paired up with David Ruderman for a year, and that was a lot of fun. He was a great guy as well. Okay, I ate it. We didn't talk about we didn't talk about how bad Red Bull was. so We didn't talk about Michael I, Waltrip Racing. Hey, we can still talk. Camera's uh, still going? So how bad was Red Bull Rice? Unbelievably. Let me take that back. They were in position. They came in with enough money and enough attitude to do what they needed to do. But they started off the whole thing wrong, trying to do it completely different than everybody else in the sport. And... Uh, kind of like hey I'm smarter than everybody else and they really really struggled for the first three years you know they missed all kinds of races so I get there in 2009 I guess Um, I worked with uh, Brian Vickers and um, you know we really started putting things together uh, making better decisions just getting rid of all the all the stuff that they were trying to do that wasn't wasn't proper back then. Um, they focused on all the wrong things. Just really, really, they're really arrogant. And um, but you know, they, I think they still would have. They still would be here. And I think NASCAR gave them a hard time. I think they wanted to come in. Red Bull wanted to come in and do it their way, and that wasn't the NASCAR way. I think they butted heads and, and they decided to leave. But um, you know, we would finally got things really. You know, it took three years, you know, we started running well, sit on poles, won a race, like we started to be take a real good, uh, real good stand in where we were. Um, Red Bull came in and said they're happy with it, whatever, all the executives came in and said they're really happy with whatever was going on and uh, they loved what we were doing. That was like in June and then like three months later they said they're shutting down. And we, at the time, we were a real competitive team, um, quality team, and I thought for sure, like something, you know, somebody will buy it up. So it'll, you know, there's a lot of assets there. Those, like somebody will come in and keep it going. And uh, I, I, even at the last minute, I thought it was going to continue, and it didn't. And uh, so it's, that's, you know, it set a lot of people back. How much crossover was there between NASCAR and F1? Oh, at that time, uh, almost. Yeah, zero, zero. Um, and, you know, and, and at that time they were, you know, they're struggling in F one. Yeah. Know. Um, obviously not like today in F one, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think they got uh, something figured out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, th- 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 there was there was nothing. Just some of the mentality uh, when people come over here they, they just wanted to do it completely different. And um, you know, it's almost. It's almost like they were saying these NASCAR guys are a bunch of idiots is what yeah. you know when you come into somebody else's playground and then you tell them that they're doing everything wrong it's it's pretty arrogant and uh that that's what they did and it took a lot to get to get uh, through that mentality um, and you know, and they were foreign, so there's a lot of things. Culture yeah. was completely yeah. different yeah. from those leaders. Now, yeah. it's inside a race shop, there was a different, you know, it was a different set of problems. But um, you know, sometimes we there's so many race teams out there that could do so much better with a little bit more money. They spent so much money that it was it hindered them. there it, they, it was it was never an option to not. There was a, never not one option to not buy, get something, do something different. I mean, it was it was more work to spend the money that they were doing than it was if you cut the budget in half. I, I, I mean, wow. it, I know it sounds yeah. silly, but you, you know, sometimes you go like, "Hey, if you need ten things, they would just get well." If you need ten, you need a hundred, and then you got to manage a hundred things, and you only need ten. Wow. Does that make sense. And it yeah. was yeah. I, I, I'd like to say that that's. Uh, there's people there that could, would agree that that exaggeration of you only need ten, but you got a hundred. That that is exactly that's not an exaggeration. They bought a hundred radiators to start the season out the last year I was there, a hundred for at, two race teams. At how many? At how much a piece? Oh, back then some of them were forty thousand a piece. There, you could put a new radiator in every brought, single practice session and in, in race. We were running a radiator one race and practicing another one one race a weekend on average. An average weekend, a hundred. So that's seventy. That's seventy radiators right there, not counting the speedway radiators. There was, I mean, it's there was that many radiators they bought.
0: A hundred forty thousand dollar radiators.
1: Yeah. Yes. I don't know the math, but that's a lot of money. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I have friends. I don't know if you've ever talked to Chris Paulson at CNR Racing. They made a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I, I know people will say that's an exaggeration, but it's not. Same thing with rear uh, transmissions. Hundreds of them. So they were literally just throwing money at... Oh, absolutely. It was the re- most ridiculous and insane thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Was there a- any kind of budget? Or, was, was, uh, or was it just was, an open checkbook? If there was, <laughs> it was so big you couldn't, you couldn't. Uh, wow! You couldn't see the end of it. It was, it was, uh, it was that bad. Um, until you experience that, you would never. In racing, you always yeah. need more. There, they they just spent it all in the wrong areas. It's unbelievable. Yep. But uh, you know, it turned out good. You know, we we ran well. We sat on several poles with uh, uh, with Vickers. Uh, we were running well. Then he got a blood clot, and then he he had to um, get out of the car. And then, you know, we had uh, merry-go-round of drivers, right? Yeah. And in uh, um, that, you know, I don't know how many drivers that year—probably six or eight—I don't know. So that's how I get. That's how I get to like crew chief a lot of drivers. <laughs> mm. Well, I don't want to turn the camera off. What else you got? Oh, what else? I don't know. I got to keep thinking. In whatever you, whatever you want to talk about. I mean, what other drivers? I, Ernie Irvin was the most spectacular driver I ever worked with. If ever, anybody ever knew, like when, when he drove when he drove uh, um, MB for MB two, how hurt he was, and he didn't show it or didn't let anybody know yeah. But he was he was. He was driving race cars while he was really hurt, and um, you know there was no no chance that even come close to being able to get in a car these days, the way he was back then. Yeah, Um, and uh, he could still go fast. He's had a few poles, leading races, like he he could still get it done. And I know he was struggling, you know, mentally. Not uh, physically. On top of that, right? yeah. he he was never. I mean, I feel bad for him. He's. I know. I can't imagine how many concussions he's had in his career. And uh, but you know, we saw him pull at Indy. Had a chance to win that race. Come back next week. Sat on him pull at Martinsville. He, so we could. He, he was still capable of doing it in a lot of different areas. But um, just like Davey Allison, there's no telling how good he would have been if he could have stayed healthy. And Jerry Nadeau. Hey, I'm Ryan Pemberton, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast.
2: You might know me as L.W. Wright. The only place you can hear from me and the truth about me is from the Scene Vault Podcast.
0: This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Steve. This interview with Ryan Pemberton, it was one of those where I had asked basically all the questions that I had, but you always, 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 always finish up an interview like that with something along the lines of, is there anything else that you'd like to add now, more often than not. The people that you're interviewing will say, no, I think we've covered just about everything in the way that we do interviews, yeah. <laughs> With yeah. our 15, 20 pages of questions. Yeah. We <laughs> usually cover everything. They got somewhere when, to go. <laughs> <laughs> but when I asked Ryan that he was like, do you want to talk about DEI in racing? And we proceeded to talk for another 15, 20 minutes. And I got Ryan to do one of those promos that we feature every week. And then he goes well, we didn't talk about Red Bull or Michael (laughs) Walter (laughs) Brayson. And again, to paraphrase his brother, Robin, I was like, well, boy, have at it. Steve, I don't want to sensationalize anything, but it honestly and truly was like there was stuff that he wanted to say.
2: Mm -hmm. Had to be to go on like that, Rick. No question.
0: I'm so glad that he got a chance to say it because I would assume I've got to believe that this was the last interview that he ever did. Mm -hmm. And we covered the bases, you know, from start to finish. Now we might not have talked about everything. You're never going to get every piece of information out of a story, but we covered it pretty doggone well, I think.
2: Well, Rick, I agree with you. I think you spoke very well to that. I know you had some concerns about having Ryan on the show after his passing. But here's something else I want to mention. Danielle Fry, who used to work for scene. She tweeted that she was so appreciative that we did the podcast with Ryan because his family will now be able to listen to his final words whenever they want to. And I think that's very meaningful. And I thank Danielle for bringing that up because I agree 100% with.
0: Well, you know, I thought it was so cool, the memorial that they had for him. And Steve, I don't know if you saw the post, but there were, I bet you there were probably 20, 25 people from nb 2 Motorsports alone Mm -hmm. that showed up to Ryan's service. And when you have that kind of impact on people, that's a pretty doggone cool legacy to leave behind.
2: Absolutely.
0: Danielle had contacted me and I actually uploaded the entire interview, the raw interview without all the graphics and all that stuff on it. I uploaded that and I sent her a link and she passed that on to Ryan's family. And I wanted them to have that as a memory of Ryan. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I really believed that Larry Wright found himself in a similar situation. He got to tell his story from his viewpoint as convoluted. And contradictory <laughs>
2: And it <laughs> might be, yeah.
0: <laughs> as that turned out to be, so you know, Steve, that's one of the reasons why I really consider this podcast to be so important is we're preserving those memories for a lot of people.
2: That's right, absolutely, Rick, and with Larry Wright and with Ryan Pemberton, I think we have proven that perfectly.